Okay, we have an exam that is due on Monday that I gave you last time. Everybody, everybody here at least has it now. I think I still have one more person to catch up with to get it to. Um, does cover chapters 10, 11, and 12. One person already told me they're very glad that it's a take home exam and not in class after looking at it. So I guess it was harder and I'll have to work even harder on number four and try to make an easier exam on number four. But hopefully that should help this one at least if you've got access to everything. I still don't recommend that you spend 20 hours working on it this weekend. So, you know, don't go, over, don't go overboard on it, but there is no time limit. You can take whatever, whatever you need. Uh, the third set of solar observations, hopefully we'll start to get to start to see some sun tomorrow, finally, after about a week. So we should start to see some sun, at least breaking through the clouds tomorrow. I've seen, I've seen glimpses and I've seen the moon a few times through the clouds, but not, not a lot these last couple days. But any, any observations you've gotten since the last set, turn in on Wednesday of next week, and then I'll look at those and give those back to you on Friday. Quiz 5 does not affect you because your Quiz 5 is already done and gone. Um, homework 6 I gave out last time, and that's due a week from today. And then Quiz 6 for you will be the following week, which is on Chapter 13, which we're almost done with, and Chapter 14, which we'll be covering next week. And then just as a note ahead, looking ahead, the third and last article review is due on November the 16th, coming up in two weeks from today. So, any questions on, questions on materials? No? No? All right. Picture of the day for today. Appropriate for us in this class, since we're going to get on, we're talk, starting to talk about, well, it's talking about relativity right now, getting into black holes. But this is a picture of the black hole at the center of our Milky Way galaxy. How do you get a picture of a black hole? You can't see it, right? Nothing escapes from a black hole, so how can you see it? Well, you can't. You can't see a black hole directly, but you can see material as it's funneling into the black, black hole. So once you get inside that event horizon that we defined last time, nothing gets out. So if you're closer to this, the black hole than that event horizon, any material, no matter what it's doing, it cannot get out. It could go, you could have a supernova explosion inside that event horizon. We're never going to know about it. That material cannot get back out. That, that information cannot get back out to us. But outside of that event horizon, material actually can spiral around this black hole. And that's what it does. Remember we had material spiraling around down to a, down to a white dwarf? Material spiraling down to a neutron star? Well, you could spiral down around towards a black hole. And in that disk of material around the black hole, that gets heated up to extremely high temperatures, hundreds of thousands of degrees, and emits x-rays. Hundreds of thousands, millions of degrees, and will emit x-rays. And that's what we're seeing here. This, the background one is just a picture of our Milky Way in infrared light. You can actually see the center of our galaxy. It's a little bit brighter there. Zoomed in for an x-ray image. There's the intense x-rays from coming from the center right around the black hole. And what it was looking at was that it actually noticed a flare from that, from that black hole. Extra material coming out from that disk of material. Again, not from the black hole itself, but from that disk of material around the black hole. So normally it looks like this or like this, essentially the same. Other times, at flare, it was much more intense, much brighter, much brighter emission. So what might have happened there? Perhaps extra material, star clusters, gas clouds, stars, whatever, got a little got closer to the black hole and ended up being adding to that material in the disk as, and emitting more energy. So you added more material being fed towards the black hole. Might have given it a little bit of a outburst. 
We see this in other galaxies. What we'll be talking about in a couple chapters is one something called active galaxies. Galaxies where the central part, where there's a black hole, is actually much more energetic and is constantly emitting a lot more energy in things like x-rays that we see. Our black, the black hole at the center of our galaxy is relatively small. Yes, relatively small in astronomical terms doesn't mean much, right? Four million times the mass of the sun. As black holes come in terms of this, in terms of galaxies, that's rather small. There are some that are, you know, many millions, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of times the mass of the sun in some galaxies. More mass, the more energy you're going to be getting as material spirals, spirals into it. So it's a relatively calm one. It hasn't had a lot of material into it, in it yet. But it's constantly adding, and that's probably what we're seeing here is a little bit of a flare where some extra material, maybe an extra star, maybe an extra cloud of gas, got caught up spiraling into that black hole. And we're seeing that extra emission of energy as a burst that lasted a relatively short amount of time. It was about several hours. So it wasn't that it lasted days or weeks or months or years or anything else, the typical time span, but several hours. So something got close, gave an extra burst of x-rays as it started spiraling in and died back down to normal, settled back down to normal. So we'll look again, we'll look at these a little bit more when we come up to the chapter on active galaxies, chapter 15. So we're only two chapters, we're only two chapters away from it right now. But appropriate since we're going to be talking about black holes a little bit, a little bit today. Questions? No, no, no. All right. <coughs> oh, we'll go from black holes to relativity. Yay. So we were looking, this is where I was, but actually I was going on a little bit of an aside with some extra information last time. And we'd gone through sort of Einstein's special theory of relativity, which had to do, which has to do only with motion. Doesn't have anything to do with gravity. That's coming up in the next section. But it only has to do with motion. And it was all based on these three postulates, the first of which on the previous slide said you can't travel faster than the speed of light. The other one said that there's no absolute frame of reference and that space and time are not independent but are unified. They're one thing. They're one and the same, just different versions of the same thing. When you go through that, when you make those assumptions, you end up with some very interesting things that occur. We talked last time about two of these. We talked about time dilation. We talked about length contraction. Time dilation was that if you're traveling close to the speed of light, your clock slows down. So if you travel very close to the speed of light, go out in space, travel close to the speed of light for a year, two years, three years, travel to the nearest, travel to the nearest star and back, you know, take you eight years. It might take eight years to you in your time of traveling, but to somebody else watching you, they're seeing your clocks run extremely slow. Theirs are going to be zipping by and it might pass a hundred years or a thousand years on the earth. So one way to travel forward in time. Can't go back again. You know, traveling again doesn't, doesn't do anything. But you can travel toward in time because when you go close to the speed of light, your time would slow down. If you could get to the speed of light, time would stop. Can't get to the speed of light, but if you could, then time would essentially stop. So time dilation is one of the things we looked at. The second was length contraction, which just meant that as you were traveling, if you had your meter stick here traveling, and I could throw this meter stick at you know 99% of the speed of light, yeah, right, huh? Um, that it would look a lot. That it, you, if you were sitting there there and measuring it as it went by, you wouldn't measure it as a meter in length. If I could get it very close to the speed of light, you me- measure it at half a meter or a third of a meter, 
quarter of a meter, a tenth of a meter, the faster it's going, the closer it gets to the speed of light, the smaller it gets in that direction. So the lengths would actually change. The other two that I didn't get, didn't get to that I wanted to make sure I mentioned a little bit, one is that angles change. So the way we see angles, aberration is just kind of a changing and distortion of angles. And what it means is that if you're traveling close to the speed of light, again, 90%, 99% of the speed of light, not just you know a tenth of the speed of light or tw- a quarter of the speed of light, you don't notice a big change. It's when you get really, really close to the speed of light that you start to notice these things. That angles get all distorted and it means that you can actually travel by something and pass it and still see it ahead of you. All the angles have gotten so distorted that the light from it is still coming in front of you even though you've passed the object. Or you can travel through an object and still see it, still see it in front of you. you can be, it can be behind you but you'll still see it in front of you because everything's gotten distorted. It's all the way with space and time get distorted when you're traveling at that high speed. The last one I wanted to mention is the increase in mass. Your mass increases as you travel faster and faster. So when you're standing still, your mass is at its lowest. If I start walking, my mass is increased by an infinitesimal amount that I couldn't even measure. If you travel in a car, it's go, it's, your mass increases even more. If you travel in an airplane, it's even more. If you travel in a, the, up in space in a rocket, it's traveling even more. All of those, it's still negligible. It's not going to be any amount that you notice. But when you get going at really high speeds, when you start going 80, 90% of the speed of light, it does make a big difference. And if you can get electrons traveling at very high speeds, which we can do, we can get electrons, accelerate them up to very good fractions of the speed of light, their mass actually increases. And you can get an electron to be twice the mass it normally is if you get it going fast enough. That makes a problem. That's one of the sort of the things that comes about with this not being able to travel faster than light speed. If your mass increases, go back to Newton, right? F equals ma. That still applies. So if you're trying to accelerate an object, pushing it with some force, if the mass is increasing, it's going to accelerate less and less with the same force applied. Eventually, if you've got to the speed of light, your mass would become infinite. If your mass is infinite, no matter how much force you push with, you can't budge. You're not going to be able to budget. So you're never able to get over that speed of, that speed of light barrier. Again, that comes, down, that comes with the assumption that we made at the beginning that says that speed of light is the maximum. But this mass increasing, some of these are things we can actually measure. We can actually measure the increase in mass of particles, tra- particles traveling at high speeds. We can make that measurement. We can measure the effects of time dilation in particles, not in humans traveling at that speed. We can't get going that fast, but particles can travel that fast. And particles, radioactive particles decay. Certain particles decay with a certain time frame. And there are particles that are created in the upper atmosphere that should never reach the Earth. Should never get down to the surface of the Earth because they decay in tiny fractions of a second. But if they're traveling at very close to light speed, they actually can make it down to the surface of the Earth and be detected. So we've actually been able to observe some of these effects of, uh, of special relativity. Now I'm going to take, let me pause here for one second. I have a couple of clips here I want to show you. I'm going to do one here and I'll do one after general relativity. This one, I apologize, this is rather 
not very high resolution, but you still get some kind of an idea. It gives you an idea of what it might be like traveling and gives you some ideas of some of the what, what it might look like to travel at a very high, very high speed. So let me Okay, so special relativity has all to do with motion and how fast you're moving and if you're moving close to the speed of light. If you're going at a low speed, it doesn't make any difference. Everything we went through with Newton in terms of motion works just fine if you're going at a slow speed. Newton's laws break down when you start traveling at very high speeds, very high fractions of the speed of light. Now general relativity on the other hand is all to do with gravity and says really that you can, the, real, the postulate of general relativity says that there is no way to tell the difference between these two situations. Here you've got a completely closed room, other than we got it open so we can see that there's a person in there, but imagine this is a completely closed room so you can't see out at all. And what Einstein says is there's no way to tell the difference between that if that room is sitting on the surface of the earth in a gravitational field or if that same room is out in space being accelerated at a constant rate. There's no way to tell the difference. There's no physical experiment. Yes, if you got a window, you could peek out and see. No windows, completely closed in. There's no physical experiment we can do that will be any different. If we're on Earth and I drop a ball, gravity pulls it to the ground, right? If we're in space, there's no gravity. But if I let go of a ball here and this is accelerating up exactly to match gravity, well, guess what? The ball is still going to hit the floor in exactly the same amount of time. Any experiment that I do will not distinguish between those two systems. So there's no way to tell. If you're in a completely closed room, again, get rid of the windows in this classroom and it would work. We couldn't tell if this classroom was sitting here on Earth or being accelerated through space, constantly increased in speed at 9.8 meters per second every second. If you accelerated it with that same force, there's no experiment that we could do that would tell us the difference. Short of breaking the wall and saying, is there anything out there? You know, what's out there? Is it space or is it the Earth? There's no way to tell the difference. So that's the main postulate of general relativity. There's no way to tell the difference between these two. And what it really means is that gravity is just a, a, matter, of an it's a matter of an acceleration. It's sort of a bending of space. And what we get is what it means in the end is that when you have an example here, for general relativity. Uh, imagine a sheet stretched out. In fact, I'm going to show you a video of this. Let me explain it first, then I'll do the little video clip. But we have a sheet stretched out, and you put something in it. You hold it real taut at the edges, and you put a heavy object in it. It's going to bend down. That is what Einstein says that matter does to space. Matter bends space. It distorts it. Now, you're looking at a two-dimensional space, so to really try to imagine this, you really want to blow your mind. You've got to imagine three-dimensional space being bent in a fourth dimension that you can't even see. Yuck. Easier to go back a dimension. It's easier to see this because you can understand it. The same thing happens in space, but space isn't two-dimensional. It's three-dimensional, and you're warping it in a direction that you can't even look. So it throws you there, but the concept here should be, is, is a little bit easier to see. If you put something heavy on that sheet, it's going to bend it. And what that does is it changes a straight line. You know, light wants to follow a straight line. It changes the path of that straight line. It changes the path of what a straight line is. A straight line on the surface of the Earth is not really a straight line, right? If you take an airplane from, you know, intercontinental flight from, you know, here to Japan, 
how do you fly? If you're taking a one one stop, no stops, right? You don't fly, you don't try oh, you don't fly over Hawaii and California, California, Hawaii and out to Japan. It's a longer route. It's actually shorter to go up over Canada and Alaska and down to Japan because it's a curved surface. Well, the same thing happens in space. That space when it's bent, light will follow the shortest path. It doesn't want to go the long way. It wants to take the shortest path. So what will happen is that you can imagine if you were to roll something on this, it would deviate its orbit, but it would also do it, and this is where it distinguishes itself from Newton. Any object will deviate. Yes, Newton had gravitational force to keep the moon in orbit around the Earth, but this will actually work for any object. Any object will be deviated, not just two objects with mass, because Newton's, lo Newton's law said what? Right? Said the force depends on the mass of one object, the mass of the other object. Well, if one of those objects is light, light has no mass, so the force is zero. So Newton's laws made a very good prediction that said, you know, gravitation object isn't going to be a, light isn't going to be affected by gravity. Light is zero. The force is zero, so it doesn't matter. Einstein's version of gravity is something completely different. It's not a force between two objects, but it's a bending of space that matter, and the more matter there is, the more space is bent. And that means there'll be a deflection of light. So light will actually follow the shortest path, which might not be a straight line, direct straight line as we'd normally expect. And what that means and how we first saw one of the first detections of general relativity was looking at starlight during an eclipse of the sun. What's the biggest massive object we've got around? Well, the sun, right? We can look at stars near the sun. If we could look at stars near the sun, then their position should be changed a little bit. If we looked at that, well, we can't look at them near the sun. Sun's in the way. It's too bright. We can't see anything. Well, we can during an eclipse. So in 1919, several years after, a couple of year or two after Einstein came up with general relativity, it made this prediction. That's a good scientific theory, right? It makes a prediction we can go test. It had never been observed before. You know, no one had gone looking for this. So it made a good scientific, made it true, it made it, you know, makes a good prediction and say, hey, we can go test this. If there's no bending of light by the sun, general relativity is wrong. We can throw it out and go to something else. If it does bend, then we confirm general relativity and we go on to more tests of it. So we went for an eclipse. Go to an eclipse and take pictures of the stars right by the sun when it's blocked out. Compare those to pictures that were taken you know, six months before or six months later when those star, that star field is not anywhere near the sun and compare them and see if their positions had changed. And what was found is that the positions did change and that general relativity was confirmed. Was it proved? No. It was confirmed. So you can't prove it because you still got to find there's still more, more and more things to do. We haven't been able to disprove it yet. Of course, Newton's lasted a couple hundred years. Einstein came along with something better. That doesn't mean that a hundred years from now, someone won't come out with something better to explain that. So let me go back, and then I'll come back to this. I'm going to end out again and do my other video clip here. Let me pause this again. So starlight is able to be bent by the sun, and that this does confirm general relativity. But I kind of like the way that shows it a little bit more interactively, showing you know, how they mean, how things would actually move in space, how the moon actually orbits the Earth. is not, not a force between the Earth and the moon, but the Earth distorts space, and the moon follows the shortest path in that space, which happens to be an orbit around the Earth. 
The sun does the same thing to space and the earth follows around, around that. So it's different than Newton's understanding and it does lead again to the fact that light will be bent and that's something that we can measure. We can measure that light is actually bent when it passes close to the sun or close to another, another object. The other object, the other sort of verification of general relativity, the bending of light was one. The second one was actually the orbit of Mercury. Because at the time in the early 1900s when <coughs> Einstein was coming up with this theory, we could predict the orbits of Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Earth, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, all very accurately. We could predict exactly where they were going to be. Mercury, almost. It was, it was just a little bit off. It was really, really close, but it wasn't quite there. And that was one of the problems. You know, it just wasn't quite right. It wasn't a big amount, but it was enough that it was significant. It wasn't like, oh, it's just a measurement error. It was very consistent that they could not quite get the orbit of Mercury right. Based on general relativity instead, the orbit of Mercury was proven. Was it actually verified? What way Mercury did appear to, to move was exactly what was found. All right, so what's going to happen if we get near a black hole? Black hole is very intense if you get close to it. If you're far away from it, outside a few times the Schwarzschild radius, as few times the event horizon, it's really unnoticeable. That means that if the sun turns into a black hole right now, it's going to get dark. Yeah, there's no sunlight anymore. You got a black hole there. It's going to get cold. Got no more source of heat. So yeah, it's going to have an effect, but the Earth doesn't just go boom, get sucked into the sucked into the black hole. If this black hole just crushed it down, just crushed the sun exactly the same amount of mass it had right now, crush it down to a black hole. Nothing's going to change. Earth's still going to orbit around it just fine. It's not going to change it. Not going to change anything. So all the planets will still be there orbiting around this black hole sun. Yeah, they're going to be a lot colder. And it's not going to be a lot darker because you don't have any source of energy. But they're not. Sometimes people think of the black holes as these big vacuum cleaners. Your vacuum just comes through and sweeps up everything, everything around it. And it does not. They don't suck in any more material than anything else would. So a black hole, the mass of the sun, put at the center of the sun, would not grab in any material around it any more than the sun would. Comets that pass close to it would happen to get sucked in, yeah, but no more so than they crash into the sun right now. So you don't really notice it. If there was a black hole, if we were orbiting around a black hole, as we do around the one at the center of our galaxy, our whole sun orbits around that black hole, it's no different than if it was a black hole or just a whole bunch of stars or a whole bunch of any other kind of matter there. So they're not these great big cosmic vacuum cleaners. Unless you get very close to them, you don't notice any of the effects of a black hole. Now if you do get close enough to one, that's where it gets fun, right? Um, tidal forces. Remember we talked about tides a little while back. Tidal forces were that, you pull, uh, that the moon pulls on the near side of the earth a little bit more than it pulls on the far side of the earth. Stretching the earth a little bit, causing the water and atmosphere to distort and sort of giving us high and low tides. Well, if you get it close enough, if you get an object close enough to the black hole, you can be pulling on this side a lot more, stronger than you're, a lot more strongly than you're pulling on this side and you can actually tear it apart. So you're going to rip this entire object apart as it comes close to the black hole just because you have the force. Again, go back to Newton's version. The force is so much more 
when you're at one distance than when you're at another distance. You've got so much force pulling on this side, less force pulling on the far side, and it's just going to rip the whole thing apart. Jupiter can do the same thing. Jupiter does the same kind of thing with comets, or the sun does it with comets. If they pass close enough to the sun, it'll shred them apart. A black hole could do it with a much larger object. Just tear it apart just because it's so much, so much, um, so has such a size. It's pulling on this side so hard, and it's pulling a lot less on this far, the further side. And that te- that'll tear the object apart. It'll also heat it up. So you're tearing it apart. You're not only ripping it apart, but you're heating it up. And as it spirals into the black hole, usually spirals in because things are moving, and you can't just send a moving object into a central black hole. It kind of spirals around it and slowly loses energy. So you end up getting these disks of material around the black hole. So it slowly spirals in as it gets torn apart. And that releases a lot of that energy. And that's what we see. That's the way we see a black hole. Can't look at it directly. There's nothing there. There's nothing to see in a black hole. All you see is black. There's nothing there, nothing there. But you can see the material as it is spiraling into the black hole. That is actually visible. Now, we see a couple other things as you get closer to the black hole. We see a couple of other things. First of all, you see a redshift. Okay, so we're actually going to get what we call a gravitational redshift. And that slows down time. Time slows down not only when you move very quickly. This has nothing to do with speed. Time will slow down when you move very close to the speed of light. But if you get close to a strong source of gravity, your clocks are going to slow down as well. So that means that you're up here on the second floor. Your clock's running a little bit faster than it would be down on the first floor. Is it noticeable? No, you're not going to measure it but it is running a little bit slower. Go to the top of a tall building, skyscraper, it's even less. Are you still going to notice it? No, but it still is there. But when you get to something where there's a very large gravitational effect, very large source of gravity, such as a black hole, it's extreme. That extreme extreme gravitation will actually slow down time. It'll slow down time it also causes a redshift of the material leaving that black hole. Produces a lot of high energy, a lot of x-rays, a lot of gamma rays. But trying to escape from the black hole, it loses a lot of energy. Takes a lot of energy to get away from something with that much gravity. You're inside the event horizon, doesn't matter how much energy you got. You ain't getting out. You're stuck. You're going to turn back around. If you're outside, if you're on this side, here's the black hole, here's where you are, you can escape. But you're going to be losing energy. How do we normally lose energy? Slow down, right? If you throw something up in the air, I throw a ball up in the air, it's losing energy as it gets towards the top, right? It's losing kinetic energy. It had some motion, it now has less. It's slowing down. Light can't slow down. Light always travels at the speed of light, right? So it can't slow down. It can lose energy by getting stretched out. It can change its wavelength. So it can go from being x-rays or gamma rays if it's really close to that black hole. As you get further out, By the time it gets away there, we might see it as visible or infrared light. That's how it lost its energy. Had to lose the energy to escape. It can't slow down because that light that's being produced there is traveling at 300,000 kilometers per second. The light that we're detecting is traveling at 300,000 kilometers per second. It's always going to. It can't slow down. But it can lose energy just trying to escape from that gravitational field. Now, if you were in this probe, lucky you, right? traveling into the black hole, you don't notice anything. 
You wouldn't notice those effects to you personally any more than you notice the time dilation. If you're traveling at half the speed or three quarters the speed of light, 90% of the speed of light, you don't notice the time changing. It's going to be exact. It's going to look like one second is one second. Your clock's going to run at a normal time. But because everything is slowed down, you don't notice the difference. Only someone looking from outside would see it. The same thing would happen in a strong gravitational field. You wouldn't notice anything if you were traveling into this black hole. Uh, maybe getting ripped apart if you're getting close. That's, that's different. But if you're just getting close to it, actually that's all, that only works for certain black holes too. That doesn't work for all of them. But you, know, you wouldn't notice anything. Time would be perfectly normal to you. But time would be slowing down. So as you're approaching this black hole, your time slows down more and more. So it takes from an outside observer, it looks like it takes you forever to enter the black hole. Because your time is slowed down more and more and more. And their time is zipping by. To you, you don't see any difference. But they see quite a difference when you, when you do that. So as you travel close to the black hole. Now I mentioned that it depends on the black, depends on the black hole. If you have a very small black hole, something that forms from, say, a supernova explosion that we've talked about, maybe it's eight, ten times the mass of the sun, you're going to get ripped apart if you're going close to it. If you're going close to one of these gigantic black holes that's millions of times the mass of the sun, their event horizons are so large that you could actually pass through them without noticing the, the, the tidal effects. So you wouldn't get torn apart. You could actually get inside the event horizon, could never get out again. But you, wouldn't necessarily, you could actually get inside that, that and learn about a black hole. Can you tell anybody about it? No. Can't get back out again. But you could actually get inside it without, having any, without getting torn apart. That tidal force that I showed would really apply for a much smaller black hole or on much larger scales. If you're ripping apart things like stars or you're ripping apart things like you know, dust clouds that are much larger, you have a bigger differential force. You have a much bigger difference here. A smaller object entering one of those large black holes would be able to make it right, right in there. So you can go explore it, learn all about it, and never be able to tell anybody what you learned. Can't get, it back, can't get that information back out of the black hole. So here's what I was talking about with the, gravitation, with the gravitational shift. I sort of went through all this on the last one, but let's go through it again just to make sure. You're sending your probe in there, and it sends you out a signal. And you might have, as you're getting real close to this black hole, say something the size of the sun, if you're sending out visible light, it's getting stretched and stretched and stretched. Just imagine, it's trying to escape this black hole. It can do it. It gets stretched out into the radio part of the spectrum, but it can get away. You're not in the black hole. Again, nothing. Once you're inside this, you're stuck. There's nothing else. But if you're outside of it, if you have material spiraling around, that material can release energy and it can, escape, it can get out. But you may not see it as it was originally formed. It might have formed as visible or x-rays or gamma rays. But by the time it comes out, it might be radio or in this case visible or infrared or anywhere in between radiation. So in order to see x-rays from the black hole, they have to either be coming from much further out, you know, a little ways out, didn't have to lose as much, use quite as much energy to get out, or they had to form as very high energy gamma, even higher energy gamma rays to be able to escape. The explanation there is, of course, what I already told you about. You've got to lose energy. If you're trying to escape from gravity, it takes some kind of energy. So if we could throw a ball up at, you know, what is it, 20, 
you know, whatever, 11 kilometers per second or so. I think it's 11 kilometers per second from the Earth. So if I could throw it at 20 kilometers per second, yeah, again, no, not even close, but it would escape from the Earth. Ignoring atmospheric drag and all of that fun stuff that you have to have to worry about, but if I could throw something that hard, it would escape from the Earth. But it would be going slower when it got away. Light can't slow down. You can't have this photon going 300,000 kilometers per second and, whew, I got away from the black hole, I'm only going 100,000 kilometers per second. It doesn't work. You can't slow down a light beam. The only way you can lose energy is to stretch out the wavelength. That's the idea of the gravitational redshift. Now let me see where... Trying to remember. One more, okay. What's inside a black hole? Nobody knows? Nobody's, nobody's made that trip in there and even if anybody had, they can't get out to tell us about it? Theory right now says that it just keeps collapsing. So you have the mass of the sun or 10 times the mass of the sun. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and goes down to zero. Condenses it down to, you know, no space. Is that really what happens? Probably not. There might be something else that kicks in that we don't know, that we can't know about because there's, the gravity is too intense that the information can't get out. So we really don't know. You know it seems unlikely to us that you know, scientists don't like you know, zeros and infinities are really bad because all the equations blow up and nothing works. You can't understand anything. So they tend to think that it's likely that something else will happen. Maybe there's something some subatomic particle that stops the collapse or something else goes on that stops it from becoming an infinite density and a zero size. But we have no, we have no way to know that. In terms of what really is inside a black hole is another good thing that's hard to tell. Um, black holes by nature, you can't know anything about them. So I can't know what's inside a black hole. I can give you a pretty good guess, right? Black holes are probably hydrogen and helium, like everything else in the universe, but it's all been crushed out of anything that we would recognize. But you really can't tell. Black holes have only, there's only three things you can know about a black hole. Black holes have a certain amount of mass. We can measure it. We can measure that. If we can detect a black hole, we can measure how massive it is. It can have two times the mass of the sun, ten times the mass of the sun, a million times the mass of the sun. That's something we can actually measure. That's one property of a black hole. The other is its electrical charge. So if you have a black hole and you feed it in electrons, it's going to be negatively charged. The charge does not disappear when you get into a black hole. So it doesn't crush everything out, but if you feed it in positive charges or negative charges, it's going to be an electrically charged black hole. That's not likely to make a big difference in terms of black holes because if you make a black hole that's really positively charged, Guess what? It's going to attract all the negative charges and it's going to neutralize itself out. But it is one property of a black hole that you can measure. And the third one is the spin. A black hole can have some intrinsic rotation with it. But those are the only three things that we can know about a black hole. Notice that's a lot less than we know about a star. right? Big thing missing is composition. What is it made up of? Could be made up of anything. And it doesn't make any difference in terms of the black hole. You could take the, height, the iron core of a star and condense it down to a black hole. And it's going to be identical that if you just took a big glob of hydrogen and condensed it down to a black hole. Or if you took a big glob of peanut butter and condensed it down to a black hole. It's going to be, everything else is going to be exactly the same. All that information about what it was is crushed out of existence. 
So whatever you made the black hole out of, these are the only three things that you can possibly know about a black hole. So they're very simple objects. There's not a lot of detail. You don't have to worry about compositions or you know, sizes or anything else. They've got a mass, they have an electrical charge, and they have a spin. And that's all you could know about them. So they're relatively simple, simple objects. They blow your mind, but they're relatively simple objects. But unless we can figure out what goes on down there, you know, what really goes on inside a black hole is nothing, nothing I can really tell you. I, don't, I couldn't tell you for sure what goes on there. Now, do black holes exist? Well, we have evidence of some of them. I showed you one in the picture of the day for today with the um, center of our galaxy. This is a picture here of uh, star Cygnus X1. Should be, yeah. And there's a nice bright star here, a B-type star. So O, B, relatively hot star. And there's something here. There's an X-ray source associated with the star, not quite at the center. This is, this is an X-ray source that's observed that isn't associated directly with this star. Look at how the box goes. That's what we're taking this image of. This object is right about here. There's an X-ray source right there very close to the star. We can measure that by how this star is moving around. This star gets pulled one direction and the other by something that we can't see. There's something unseen there. If we determine the mass of that object, and we find out that it's more than about three times the mass of the sun, remember that was about our limit, then it's got to be a black hole. X-ray source, stars don't normally emit a lot of X-rays. Little bit, yeah, sun emits some X-rays, this star will emit some X-rays, but it wouldn't be a strong X-ray source. You can see that in this image, that star is right here, which would be where? Right about here, and not much there. It's not going to emit a lot of X-rays. But there's something with a very strong X-ray source that is off to the side, you know, that is probably orbiting or orbiting with this star that has a lot more mass, a lot more compact mass, but yet we cannot see it. So we can detect them indirectly. And this is Cygnus X1, and this is the candidate, one of our biggest candidates for a, for a black hole similar to mass of the sun. Now, when we look at this one, why is it such a good candidate? <coughs> We have the visible star that we can see is about 25 times the mass of the sun. Okay, so about 25 solar masses. We know that. We know it's a B star. We can estimate about how massive it is from the main sequence. We can use Kepler's laws and Newton's version of Kepler's laws. Uh, let me put it up there. Give it to you here in a minute. Which says that... Well, Kepler's law said a cubed equals p squared, right? Well, Newton gave us a different version, which says that p squared equals yuck, right? And I know that's part of your lab today, so double yuck. But same, same equation, right? There's a and p. If you use the right set of units, all this disappears for the solar system. This applied only to the solar system. This applies anywhere in the universe. You notice that the masses are there. So we can take that and say then that the mass of this system, everybody's going to run away before lab now, I know, right? We can find the mass of the system. 
4 is a number, pi is just a number, g is just a number, that's all just a constant, that's no big deal. All you need is a and p. You need to know the, the mechanics of the orbit. How far apart are the two objects? We can determine that. How long do they take to orbit each other? We can determine that. And gives us an estimate of the mass. And that's what we determined here, that it's Here's 25 solar masses in the star we can see. The sol total mass is about 35. We do this calculation based on the orbits. That means the X-ray source must be about 10 times the mass of the Sun. White dwarf can be at most 1.4 times the mass of the Sun. Neutron star about 3 times the mass of the Sun. 10 times the mass of the Sun, as far as we know, would have to be a black hole. We see hot gas flowing from the companion, so you can see material being flowing down from one to the other. Again, other sources, there's an intense gravity, but it's really this mass that tells us that it must be a black hole because nothing else could be that compact and still contain ten times the mass of the sun. The other thing that we see is variations in the intensity. When we look at those x-rays coming from it, we get they, they change on very, very short time scales. Well, something can't vary on a time scale shorter than it takes light to travel across it. So if you have something very small changing in tiny fractions of a second, then it has to be very tiny. If you've got variations on very small time scales, if you're looking at a big object, they get all smoothed out. If you had something the size of a big gas cloud, you know, light years across, well you can't have one side get brighter and the other side get brighter, it all gets washed out. So when we see short time scale variations, that tells us that the source must be very tiny. So we know it must be tiny, we know it must be strong gravitationally pulling material, and we know it's got to be at least ten times the mass of the sun. So it's one of the best candidates we have for a black hole, a solar sized black hole. There it is again, it's the same image, again, visible in X-ray, same thing that we looked about before. X-ray source, again, looks like it lines up because of the way this image is done, but remember this is just this blown up image. That X-ray source would be right about there. So, not directly associated with the star. Now, we're going to come back over the coming chapters, we're going to look at bigger black holes. So, we're not quite done with black holes yet. The rest of the characteristics are similar. We see these disks. We see the same effects that we see under Cygnus X1. Centers of, the centers of galaxies contain black holes that are much, much larger than this. So there's a lot more going on at the center of a galaxy. We get black holes that are not just five or ten times the mass of the sun as we looked at here, but millions of times the mass of the sun. The one at the center of our galaxy is about three or four million times the mass of the sun. Pretty good sized black hole compared to the others. Pretty small compared to what we have elsewhere, what we have elsewhere. The last one is an interesting because it's kind of in between. We really easily understand how some little, how little black holes form. I explained that in terms of the supernova and hypernova explosions. Big black holes could form through colliding galaxies that could condense a lot of material near the, near the center. Interestingly enough, we actually find some intermediate ones now. So sort of in between those two extremes. The very high massive black holes, the very low mass black holes. There's some that are 100 to 1000. That's much too big to have formed from a single star. But it's awful small for a galaxy. So it's one of those other things that we're still trying to understand. How do we get these ones that are kind of in between? 
Real little ones are easy. Things that are five and ten times the mass of the sun, those are those massive stars that might have been a hundred solar masses that went through the end of their lives. The great big ones we can understand in galaxies, we'll come back to those, to those later. All right, well, we're about set there. That's, that's really the end of the chapter. So I just have the summary questions. You're welcome to take a look through those. I'm not going to take the time. I'll let you take your break and go through them. If you want to take a look at them, I'm going to leave them up there. Otherwise, I'm just probably going to go on to chapter 14 on Monday. So if you want to take a break, then we'll come back. If anybody's going to come back after seeing my equation up there to do their, their lab, it's not that bad. So questions? Questions? Alrighty.